0: Welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Brooke Patterson and today I'm very lucky to be joined by Dr Amy Dennett. We're going to be chatting about all things exercise and cancer. Welcome to the BJSM podcast, Amy. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research interests?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Brooke, for having me on today. So, um, I'm Amy. I'm a physiotherapist and I'm based in Melbourne at La Trobe University in Lazem and also affiliated with one of our major hospital networks, Eastern Health. So, my main area of research interest is cancer rehabilitation. So, I have been a physio now for a bit over 10 years um, and I started out as a rehab physio, mostly working in orthopedics and geriatrics. However, um, a few years ago, I started to see more and more people uh, with cancer. And at the same time, there was a bit of research coming out that exercise uh, is quite beneficial for cancer. Uh, and an opportunity came up that I could um, complete a PhD And I was quite privileged to be able to kind of choose my PhD topic. So uh, I went down the path of cancer rehabilitation. Uh, And one of the main reasons for this is that historically people with cancer have been told rest. Um, yet all this new research was coming out to say that people should be active and it will improve their cancer outcomes. And I personally experienced with my grandfather going through cancer, he had a nurse tell him, um, just take it easy, take it easy, which was kind of counterintuitive from um, what all the evidence was saying. And so as a clinician who's always trying to improve patient care and make sure we offer the most efficient and effective care, um, this was an area that I really wanted to work. Work in um, and we had a great cancer rehab program that was running at the hospital and the health service which was the first of its kind that was developed in Australia so it ran like a cardiac rehab style program uh, so people come for seven weeks they were doing exercise and education we had a really proactive physio and AP running that program who were really passionate about it uh, and actually the physio said to me Amy you should do a PhD in this uh, and then history um, you know six years later or something from when I started my PhD here we are uh, and I'm working exclusively in cancer rehab so it's a really rewarding area to work in Um, patients love it they're always a little bit hesitant to get started with exercise and physical activity but once you can get them in the door um, you can really change someone's life for the better and it's probably my favorite population to work with because they are so motivated and they will take on every piece of advice you ask them to, uh, even sometimes a little bit too much. Um, So that really motivates me uh, as well. Thanks, Amy. And yeah, I can really hear your passion and I've
0: I've seen that passion and what I love about What you do and the setup you've got is how you're so integrated on the ground, you're doing the research and you're also in the health service as well. So you're absolutely living the dream. Um, So that was a great summary of where you've come from, but now I know you've developed this toolkit on the back of your PhD work to, I think, you know, help with that exercise and education piece with these patients. So can you tell us a little bit about the toolkit and why you developed it?
1: Yeah, so I suppose I should give a little bit of background into my current position um, where I'm working. And as you mentioned, I am very integrated in the hospital and the health service, and my role has a very strong emphasis on translating research into practice. And so during my PhD, uh, we did a bit of a benchmarking type study, which found that just one in 200 cancer survivors have access to exercise-based rehab. Uh, we did another study with one of my honours students at the University of Western Sydney a couple of years ago that then built on that work looking just at physiotherapy services um, and still very few physiotherapy services that are specific to people with cancer exist. Um, So there are a number of barriers as to why we have all these access issues uh, but one thing that we did find uh, is that Clinicians, particularly physiotherapists, they often lack confidence prescribing exercise to people with cancer. And a lot of the research is very new. So, if you're a researcher, we know that it takes about 17 years for research to actually translate into practice. So, we really want to try and close that gap. So, if we're thinking about, you know, it's only in 2010, we had the first guidelines for exercise and cancer come out. We had an update. Uh, in 2019 to those guidelines. In 2018, our Clinical Oncology Society of Australia launched a landmark position statement to say that all people with cancer should be offered advice and a referral uh, to an exercise specialist such as a physiotherapist. So there was this huge gap in what the research was saying and what's actually happening on the ground. So we built this toolkit to try and offer clinicians, particularly physiotherapists and exercise physiologists, because they're the main ones with the specialist skills to prescribe exercise with people exercise for people with cancer uh, so they can deliver evidence-based programs and improve access ultimately um, for patients to be able to participate in exercise. So, you know, anecdotally at the time I was working as a physio myself in one of these programs and I would often have physios call me up from all over Australia actually asking what do we do in our program, you know, how much should we be pushing patients and you know, I would rattle off some resources and I have a good knowledge of where programs kind of exist in different locations. So it just made sense that we had a website which has all that information in the one place that clinicians can access and then take that and deliver cancer rehab in their clinical practice essentially. Fantastic. And I was having a little bit of a look
0: around the website before. one thing that popped out was I guess for clinicians who may be treating people with cancer and that's the primary reason they're seeing them or you know if they are treating them for something like a musculoskeletal injury but they also know that they have cancer like you mentioned that a little bit of that fear of you know how much to push so yeah I guess are there actually any screening or safety considerations
1: Yeah, so I think when you have a patient come through the door and they've got a cancer history, it's always something to consider as part of your treatment. So, you know, what cancer do they have? Is it advanced cancer? Is it early cancer? What treatments have they had? Because, you know, if they've had radiotherapy or chemotherapy in particular, that's actually going to influence, you know, potentially the musculoskeletal impairments that you might be treating. Um, Also, in terms of the stage of the cancer, there's some extra Uh, considerations that you might need to be wary of. But even if we take a step back even further and thinking about red flags, um, if someone comes to you with pain and they've got a cancer history, uh, there's a few things that we can kind of check off to make sure that that pain uh, is not necessarily just a musculoskeletal injury when we need to consider whether it's something a little bit more sinister. So things like unexpected weight loss um, associated with that pain. Do they have night pain? Is it pain on extension? Um, So things that don't quite the history of traditional musculoskeletal pain so physios in particular being a primary care practitioner can be the first ones to actually pick up cancer progression um, or cancer in the first place even if they don't have a cancer history so that's one thing um, to really be aware of um, and particular if this pain is associated with sensation changes and functional impairment particularly bladder and bowel things that might indicate caudiculina uh, and what you need to be wary of. But if we're talking about someone with active cancer, um, then there are a few things that if you're just prescribing like an exercise program and physical activity that you might still want to be, um, just considerate of in terms of their uh, progression and how fast or how hard you work with them. So, you know, if there's someone with advanced cancer, they might have bony metastases. And so if that's the case, uh, you might be changing up your ex- exercise prescription a little bit so for example if someone has bony mets in their hip um, you're not going to be loading them um, on a leg press machine um, you know if they've got bony mets in their neck of femur for example um, but you might be able to exercise other parts of the body so just because they've got bony mets in the hip doesn't mean you can't do a chest press um, for example. And you'll also be communicating with that oncology team to see what is safe because often people with advanced cancer can actually do a lot more than what you think um, they can do and functional exercise is a good place to start, but we can also push them a little bit harder as well. Uh, One of the other things that's massive in cancer is cancer-related fatigue. So, often one of the main reasons people might not participate in exercise is because they're too tired. um, So, they think they're going to make their fatigue worse. Um, But the fact is with exercise and cancer, uh, that is actually the number one treatment for cancer related fatigue because cancer related fatigue is a very different type of fatigue to the tiredness you would generally feel when you've done so much Uh, because there's a cognitive element to it there's an emotional element to it there's physiological uh, parts to the cancer related fatigue as well as just the physical so it's really important to be providing that advice and reassurance to patients that yes you actually can exercise and you need to exercise at a slightly higher intensity over a duration of time to be able to get these benefits to reduce your fatigue so it sounds counterintuitive like you shouldn't do it but it actually will be helpful in the long run but actually being able to communicate that to your patients can be quite a skill to be able to do that. And then probably one of the other big ones, uh, especially working in private practice, uh, is lymphedema. If you're seeing someone particularly who has had breast cancer surgery is probably the most common, but lymphedema is also something you should consider with other types of cancers. So, for example, if someone's had gynecological surgery or head and neck cancer surgery, anywhere where there's kind of radical surgery to the lymph nodes and the fluid might accumulate in the body because it's not getting pushed around because the lymphatic system is not working as well, uh, you need to consider a risk of lymphedema. And, again, there's some old-school advice that, you know, you shouldn't lift... Uh, you shouldn't do any weights training, you should rest the upper limb, but that is all kind of old school out the window now. So progressive resistance training that is done slowly under the supervision of an exercise professional is very safe for someone with lymphedema. It might actually prevent them from developing lymphedema into the future. Uh, Even things like blood draws and taking blood pressure on an affected arm even that thinking has kind of gone out of the window that you should avoid it completely uh, because there is some research to show that actually the main risk factors for developing lymphedema are a high BMI, physical inactivity, as well as having a complete radical clearance and radiotherapy um, of that affected side. So there's quite a lot of things that you have to consider before you're telling someone, no, you can't do this. And in actual fact, if you're not using your arm, that's probably what's going to give you lymphedema um, the most. So there are a few key big things um, to look out for, I suppose, when you're getting started in private practice and thinking about someone with cancer. Oh, that's fantastic
0: advice, Amy. So just, I guess, to summarise the, the first point you touched on um, was the consideration of the type of exercise. So I just want to circle back to that with your, you know, bony metastases, hip example and the leg press. Just to be clear for the listeners, is the reason because of pain or risk of uh, further injury that you might look at avoiding that area?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, with bony mets in particular, the main things you want to avoid are um, loading of the metastatic site because essentially, bony mets, your bones almost turn to like toothpaste consistency. It becomes very soft, so they can very easily fracture. So, loading, particularly with uh, extreme ends of range of motion. So, usually twisting and extension. uh, So, hyperflexion and hyperextension should be avoided, particularly uh, with spinal mats as well. Um, Some low intensity resistance exercise can be okay, and functional weight bearing resistance exercise if it you know involves the lower limb with a hip met for example is okay um but it's more that heavier loading particularly if it's combined with twisting um or hyper movement uh, that's what you probably want to avoid um but in terms of other exercise you know people with advanced cancer and bony mets can do moderate intensity aerobic exercise. They should be incorporating a bit of flexibility training. And for all people with cancer, and I haven't touched on this yet, and I probably should have, the recommended guidelines for exercise for someone with cancer is three lots of 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week, which includes twice a week resistance training, regardless um, of cancer so that's a general kind of exercise prescription and then it's up to the clinician uh, with a more detailed and thorough assessment taking into consideration things like bony meds and lymphedema previous musculoskeletal injuries and things like that you might tinker and tailor with that uh, a little bit more Um, someone with fatigue might not be able to do moderate intensity straight away they might need to work up to that and just do light intensity exercise, for example. So, it's a little bit of an art as well as science in terms of exercise for someone with for someone with cancer. My next question was
0: more around, I guess, some of the language and communication that you might use um, when treating a cancer patient or survivor, is there any like big
1: bugbears of these patients? Mm, I think, yeah, that is a great question that I think is not often considered by a lot of people and communication is one of the areas that I care a lot about. My PhD was in motivational interviewing and that really changed the way that I communicate uh, with my patients. A lot of the bugbears are probably my own <laughs> also than um, the patients, but I know, you know, Depending on the patient that you're talking to, but often survivor, being a survivor of cancer, it can be quite a bugbear for some patients. Um, some people, once they've finished their cancer treatment, they just want to forget about the cancer and, you know, they're just a person back living their life. I don't have cancer anymore. Um, but other people quite embrace that cancer survivor title as well. Other people prefer to be regarded as a cancer thriver because they're not just surviving, they're out living in the world. Uh, So the title of what you refer to someone as who has had cancer uh, can be a little bit tricky and I think it's always safest to say a person with cancer or after cancer and we're still trying to kind of figure that out I think in a professional sphere, what is the best terminology to use. Um, Another thing that I always kind of consider when I'm running exercise classes and things like that in particular is trying not to focus too much on the cancer. Um, So everyone is their own person. They're not, they don't need to identify by their disease. And so often when we'll start a new exercise class, sometimes what I think can happen maybe in other chronic disease management classes as you go around the circle and you say, hi, my name's this person and I've had breast cancer and rah, 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 but we don't do that. Uh, so we usually open with, hi, this is me, um, maybe tell us something about yourself that other people wouldn't know. Or we sometimes play a game called truth or lie and you know they have to tell us a truth or a lie and then that gets the conversation started. And then when you're running the group, people will organically make connections with other people within the group and then they'll be willing to share as much information as they feel comfortable with. So I think not focusing on the cancer uh, is a really important one. And then it's also important to consider that people who have had a cancer diagnosis is quite a traumatic event. And I remember sitting in with a psychologist, she was an oncology Specific psychologist, and she did this kind of talk with the patients. And it's like reliving a trauma every time you have to take a medical history, and these patients we'll see so many different clinicians. Um, They're seeing their oncologist, a GP, they might see a surgeon, they might see a physio if they're lucky uh, and then they have to tell that story over and over again and this can be over a period of years. So I try and get as much medical history as I can and just try and confirm the key points or where there's a bit of grey so they're not having to relive that over and over. Some people want to talk about it and... You may spend your whole assessment just listening to the history because they just want to get it off their chest. Um, And in that case, you just have to sit there and be an active listener and show empathy. Um, But as a general rule, I try not to go too much over and over stuff that they might have already been through uh, with someone else. So I work in a hospital, so I'm really lucky that I have access to a full electronic medical record. But often, you know, when you're out in private practice, you might not have that information. Uh, So it's a bit of a balance of making sure you get enough, um, but you're not, you know, making things too difficult for the patient either. Just as you were talking about the
0: exercise class, do you ever join them in with other? You know, chronic musculoskeletal conditions and general classes. Mm, so
1: this is another really good question. So when we actually developed the website, this came up uh, in our workshops that we did. So this website was designed designed in a more unique process in that we grabbed a whole bunch of physios and exercise physiologists who then workshop the ideas of what they wanted in a website and. The first workshop we did was very open-ended. It wasn't even about designing the website. But one thing that came up is whether you exercise people in groups of just people with cancer or you have mixed groups. And I think the conclusion is there is no kind of right answer, unfortunately. But I think from what I've experienced and maybe other clinicians have experienced is that When people are earlier on in the process, when they're still undergoing treatment or in the early phases after treatment, they really value being in a group where they are with other people who have gone through cancer because the social support, the peer support is so important. And that's actually one of the main things that patients get out of attending rehab is that social support. But when people progress Down the line, a little bit further. So, more so, I think, you know, when you're getting to a couple of years down the track, they don't want to necessarily attend a cancer specific group. So, it comes back to whether they're identifying as a cancer survivor or not necessarily. Um, So, that might be when people prefer to be in more of a chronic disease management group. Um, But in saying that, in some parts of Australia, We don't have cancer-specific programs anywhere. So you have to make do with what you have. And a lot of what we do is quite similar to what's done in cardiac rehab and pulmonary rehab. So I think as long as you individualise the program to the patient, it doesn't necessarily matter as much whether they're in a group of people who all have the same condition. Um, But I certainly i am a little bit biased and I've seen so much benefit of people who are similar, being in a similar group. Um, So it really comes down to resources, I think, essentially. And the main thing is is that people have access to a professional who can understand their condition and tailor things appropriately. And if you've got others who are in the same boat who can exercise with them, that's an added bonus and that will enhance their experience um, quite significantly. And actually, it reminds me of a quote of someone I interviewed a few years ago. She had metastatic endometrial cancer and we asked her just about cancer rehab and a lot of people who enter a cancer rehab program don't expect that it's that they're going to get anything out of it, that it's going to be a good thing and they're just kind of going there because their oncologist told them to. And she said, "I I thought I was just going to a place where people are just going to sit around talking about dying and she didn't want to do that. But then she discovered that it was the complete opposite of that and it was really empowering and motivating for her. Um, So also thinking about that in the context of doing your intake when you're trying to get people into these groups is important to consider as well.
0: Well, That's fantastic. What types of settings can these programs work in? Are we talking mainly hospital or can it also work in a private practice setting?
1: In Australia, I think where much these types of cancer rehab exercise groups are a bit more biased to be within hospital uh, settings. Um, In terms of private practice, you're more likely to see them in an exercise physiology practice because that's their bread and butter. uh, And they have been trained, I think, from early on that cancer is a core area of practice for them. Whereas physio, I think... Because we have so much emphasis, particularly on musculoskeletal physio. When you think of a physio in private practice, that's probably the first thing the public thinks of. Um, And so physio probably hasn't done quite as well at marketing themselves to cater for chronic disease. I think that's getting better now. Uh, So there are a couple of specialist private practices that I know for physio, um, but not a huge amount, and that's something that I think is a huge untapped resource. We have, I think, nearly 40,000 registered physios in Australia and not all of them are gonna be cancer physios, um, but they all have a basic understanding of the tools that they need to be able to prescribe exercise for someone with cancer. And when you think about 50% of people will be diagnosed with cancer by the time they're 85, a lot of the people coming through the doors of those private practice practices will either have a current history or a past history of cancer. So it's certainly knowledge that you want to have in your toolkit if you're in private practice. And it's certainly an area that if you are thinking about running groups or you do run groups yourself, uh, it is A perfect opportunity to kind of expand your practice uh, by offering services to people with cancer, Um, and in other parts of the world, it's a little bit different because you know not everywhere has universal healthcare. So in the states, for example, nearly all the programs are run through private practice. Um, So, but usually for physical therapists, they're offering more of that lymphedema management, more traditional kind of physio that is seen in the cancer sphere, Um, but in Europe, for example, I think in The Netherlands, they have a really good mixed public and private system where everyone basically is offered cancer rehab in the public system. And then there's quite a network of private providers as well. So it really depends on the area that you live in the world, uh, whether you're gonna be able to access services privately or not. Um, But I suppose the main point is that we need to upskill clinicians in all settings uh, so we can kind of offer the most access. Fantastic.
0: Amy, are there any other resources that you could point the listeners to? And just to finish off, could you provide us with three key takeaways for clinicians?
1: So yes, apart from the toolkit, there are a few good resources. So Macmillan UK, so it's all based over in the UK, but they have some great guides, particularly for service development, and literally just found last week a brand new how-to guide for setting up rehab and rehab programs Uh, so definitely check out some of their resources. Um, EVQ is an Australian website uh, that's based I think traditionally for oncologists wanting to find information about new treatments but that can be really handy for people who are on treatment. Uh, You can just look up you know, whatever random treatment, immunotherapy, and it'll give you like a list of expected side effects, um, and and how the treatment is kind of delivered. So that's really helpful. Uh, and on that EVQ website, there's also some training modules as well related to different types of cancers. The Australian Cancer Survivorship Centre, which is located at Peter Mac in Melbourne, has some fantastic resources on there. Uh, so patient handouts. And also there is some opportunities for PD through that program uh, as well. So definitely check that out. And uh, I think it's called Moving More After Cancer. It's part of the Exercises Medicine Initiative through the American College of Sports Medicine. They have a global registry of practitioners who are trained in exercise and cancer, also have some fantastic handouts related to exercise guidelines and benefits of exercise um, that you can hand patients as well. And the Cancer Council, uh, a brilliant, if you want fact sheets on fatigue, nutrition, emotions, exercise, basically everything. So, and in terms of takeaways, I think number one um, is just reiterating the advice that we have from COSA and the American College of Sports Medicine, that if you're a clinician, Even if you don't know much about cancer at all, assess, ask and refer. So ask them, you know, how much physical activity are you doing Um, and refer on to an appropriate exercise professional if you can and offer them the advice of three lots, 30 minutes of moderate intensity activity per week as well as twice weekly strength training. I think reassuring patients that exercise is safe and even if they have fatigue, it is the number one treatment for fatigue. Uh, So, doing that. And I think, thirdly, just don't be afraid to push people with cancer a little bit. You know, they can work at moderate intensity, they can get a huff and a puff up. And some of these patients can be quite young they might be ex-athletes or you know recreational sports people and they want to work a little bit harder or they might be a little bit older and you know walking on a four wheel frame but you can still make them huff and puff and and work up a sweat because that's what's actually going to cause the changes that are going to you know cause all of these great improvements so I think just just don't be afraid you can you can work these patients really hard and get some fantastic outcomes from them and they will appreciate that as well. Thank you so much, Jamie.
0: And oh, yeah, great talking to you. I always love listening to you talk about your work and I love hearing your passion and um, some great resources there and just general advice. So thank you so much for joining us on this BJSM podcast.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me and, yeah, I hope you've learnt something today and and can take home at least one thing that you can put in your practice tomorrow.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, We'll pop all the resources that Amy referred to in the show notes and then, Amy, if they want to get in contact with you, best via email, Twitter.
1: Yes, I'm on Twitter. I'm on ResearchGate, so at Dr. Amy Dennett. Uh, Otherwise, you can contact me via email, a.dennett at latrobe.edu.au.